The following is a message by Librarian John Bales from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. At about 9.58, I thought of uh, myself as being Elijah. I was the only one left, and they wanted to kill me. Uh, that's kind of how I felt, but I'm glad that you've joined us today. And I'm continuing on in the series of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at Hebrews 5, specifically 11 through 14, but I'm going to read from 7 to 14 just to get a, a larger context. So Hebrews 5, 7 through 14... I was concerned, as, as uh, uh, Pastor Jesse mentioned on Tuesday, that a revival had broken out through his coming to preach, and I was going to be the one that would squelch it because there was no one here. But again, thank you that uh, you've come. We can continue on with this great revival here. Hebrews 5, beginning with verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child." But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please join with me in prayer. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends upon a true understanding of your word, grant to all of us that our hearts might be set free from any concerns we may have today, that we may hear and apprehend your word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This past summer I had the great pleasure of attending my 30-year high school reunion. Yes, I'm that old. It really was a, a pleasure to attend, although I didn't really care for the, you know, the drinking and the carousing and the dancing that takes place in the larger room, but I enjoyed being in the narthex where I could just talk with some old friends, people I hadn't seen in years. 
But perhaps the greatest part of that reunion actually took place the day before. Some of my classmates from our elementary school had organized a reunion just for our elementary school, Pioneer Elementary. This is back in Bismarck, North Dakota. There were a lot of German people there. And uh, most of my teachers were German, of German descent. And it was just a delight to be able to go into that old elementary school, walk through the corridors, see where I used to walk as a child, actually go into that first grade class where Miss Eck taught us, and uh, just to relive some of those memories. One of the students who organized it had actually tried to get some of our teachers to return, and there are a few that were alive, uh, Miss Eck being one, but uh, they were just not able physically to be there. Although I had imagined as some of us went into that first grade class and as we were looking at the desks and, and thinking about times past, what would have happened if she would have walked in at that time? I would imagine this very austere, small woman probably would have said something like, well, you all ought to be teachers by now. Instead, you're still here as students. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to these young Hebrew Christians. You ought to be teachers by now, but you're not. Verse 14 tells us the problem. You're dull of hearing. This isn't the first time that he's actually addressed this problem, is it? All along the way until this point up in Hebrews, he has addressed a spiritual problem with these people. Chapter 2, verse 1. Pay close attention. Why would he have to say that? Chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8. Don't harden your hearts like Israel. 3.12. Take care lest there lest you develop an evil, unbelieving heart. Chapter 4, verse 1. Fear, lest you fail to enter God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. Be diligent to enter God's rest, lest you fall by disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 14. Hold fast to your confession. These are all urgent admonitions. The Hebrews had a spiritual problem. And in this chapter, it says they were dull in the hearing of the word. For those of you Greek students, this is a word that's in the present tense. It's used, of course, as you know, to demonstrate the fact that there's this ongoing result of a past completed action. So they are not attending to God's word as they ought to, and therefore they're becoming sluggish. They're not paying attention to Jesus. They're not listening to the word. They're being tempted to go back to former times, to those times when they were practicing the very visible and tangible Jewish faith. It's not that they hadn't heard the teaching of Christ, but they weren't embracing it. It's not that they hadn't heard the word of Christ, but they hadn't believed it. They've been filtering out what they've been hearing. They've been very selective in their hearing. Uh, the, the Canadian educator, Marshall McLuhan, made the interesting um, observation once that mankind was not equipped with ear lids. But we overcompensate for that by selective hearing. 
And that's exactly what the Hebrew Christians had been doing. They had been filtering out what they wanted to hear. They had been sluggish in their obedience. And the preacher, we'll call him the preacher, we're not going to call him the Apostle Paul. The preacher rebukes the hearers because he's not able to explain the full implications of Christ to them. He says, do I really have to go back to square one with you? Do I have to go back to the foundations? Do we have to have a cursory review here of the foundational principles of Christianity 101? Do I have to take you back to repentance, faith, baptism, resurrection, eternal judgment? Do we need to do that? Of course, he doesn't do that. He, in fact, already into the first five chapters, has already been exploring many of the deeper things of Christ. And he's going to go on in the next chapter and the following chapters to explore the wonderful mysteries of Christ, the deeper things of God. In fact, he says, I'd like to tell you more about Christ, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but I can't. And yet he's going to do that in chapter 6 and chapter 7 anyway. So what's he doing here? He's using shame. He's rebuking them strongly. He's admonishing them. And yes, there is a pastoral tone all throughout this letter. But he is not afraid to admonish these people. Now, you're not going to find that kind of pastoral technique in any contemporary manuals of Christian pastoral ministry today but he uses it he reproves them so in fact these Hebrew Christians were not actually stuck in their childish ways because he is actually going on and and pursuing these doctrines of Christ he is though um, rebuking them and many commentators have followed Calvin, who really got this right when Calvin said, this reproof contains a goodly measure of goads to prod the Hebrews out of their laziness, and they ought to be ashamed of it. Calvin got it right. The preacher is using pastoral admonishment, rebuke, and shame to get his point across. These folks were hearing the word, Maybe they were somewhat impressed, but they weren't responding to it. It almost reminded me of uh, the story of one of the novels by Herman Melville called White Jacket. I don't know if you've ever read that. But in that story, on the ship, one of the sailors takes quite ill. And this makes the doctor, the surgeon on on the board, um, quite excited because this is the first time he's going to be able to actually deal with something really serious more than people having blisters. And he's rather enthused about this, and he diagnoses appendicitis. And he presses some of the other shipmates into service to help him, assist him with this surgery. He lays this shipmate out on a table so that many people can watch him. He he then proceeds, uh, goes at work, and he he shows great verve and skill as he makes precise cuts into this this sick uh, shipmate. And uh, he goes on his way, and he, before he even excises this diseased organ, he makes points about other organs, kind of showing these shipmates different parts. 
interesting anatomical details. He is so absorbed in his work that he loses sight of something. It's a very impressive uh, performance, and yet the sailors are astonished. They're amazed. They're aghast. Because by the time Dr. Cuticle finally sews up this sailor, he's long time dead on the table. Seminary studies, I think, can be like surgical work. You're cutting through layers of history, of culture, of grammar. You're laying bare uh, syntactical, uh, skeletal syntax and grammatical uh, muscle. You're observing complexity of organism as hidden parts are exposed. But no amount of exegetical skill can compensate for failure to attend to the patient. The author of Hebrews says, pay close attention. Listen to Jesus. Do not harden your hearts. You're dull of hearing. There's a problem. The problem is this dullness of hearing. But God has made a provision for that. And he tells us that in his word. It is God's word and spirit. The very oracles of God. The word of righteousness, as it's called here. The sum of the Christian life. This is God's remedy, God's word and spirit given to the church. And in God's word, we are told of the revelation and incarnation of his son. Chapter 1, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is far more superior than angels, Moses, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He made purification for our sins, even for the sin of dullness of hearing. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the great and high priest whose prayers on our behalf are heard. God gives us his word in ways in which we can understand, sometimes in milk, sometimes with strong meat. Whatever way it comes to us, it is always food for our nourishment, for the nourishment of our souls. It is a word of righteousness. And maybe specifically not in this instance talking about the doctrine of righteousness, but it is a word which sums up Christian teaching. Paul was one who also used that analogy. The word is milk. Or Peter, the word is milk. 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, we develop and mature as Christians just as we do as people by beginning with milk. Note verse 14, you become mature by practice or exercise of the word of Christ. Milk is an excellent source to develop healthy bodies, but it has to be assimilated into our bodies. It can't just be in a glass or a cup to to be admired and looked at. It has to be consumed. It has to be taken in and assimilated into our bodies. The word of God has to be esteemed and cherished and valued to the point where we consume it, where it becomes eaten and digested. The book of Job 
chapter 34 says, For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. So hearing and partaking of food are compared by Job. One of the ways that Christians have have done this is uh, to practice spiritual reading, how you approach the scripture. Uh, One 12th century writer in speaking on the ancient practice of spiritual reading said, reading, as it were, puts the solid food into our mouths. Meditation chews it, breaks it down. Prayer obtains the flavor of it, and contemplation is the very sweetest, which makes us glad and refreshes us. Again, the word must be digested, assimilated into our lives. And this is, of course, faith. And faith is the work of the Holy Spirit, who takes these things of Christ, these doctrines of Christ, and applies them to us. The author goes on, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their senses exercised or their faculties trained, is another way of putting it. Would that we would have trained faculties. I had to say that. John Owen, uh, speaking on this passage, said this, To have our senses exercised in the way intended is to have our understandings and minds through constant sedulous study, meditation, prayer, hearing of the word, and the like means of the increase of grace and knowledge to become ready, fit, and able to receive spiritual truths and turn them into nourishment for our souls. So we must give heed to God's word and earnestly apply our hearts and our minds to its teaching. It's something that we ought to long for, to desire, to show diligence, as it's going to say in chapter 6. Just as babies long for and cry for milk, right? We know that babies cry generally for three reasons. I'm not going to explain two of them, but one of them is for milk, for food. We ought to long for that spiritual food just as babies long for food. And the purpose of all this, the author says, is so that we can discern good and evil, right from wrong, orthodoxy from heresy. Our faculties, our minds must be trained to understand what is right and true and good, to distinguish between good from evil. Babies don't know how to distinguish that. You can put uh, Gerber peaches in their mouth, and you can put Gerber liver in their mouth. At first, they don't know the difference. They can only tell when it's been tasted. The Hebrews were easily being carried away. They did not have that ability to distinguish right from wrong. They were being tempted to go back to their previous religion. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, the author says at the end of this sermon. How will you and your people know what are diverse and strange teachings unless you know them, unless you have exercised your senses through the hearing and obeying of his word? Well, how will we do this? It's very easy to say, give heed to the word, Study, pray. Calvin and Owen and all the Reformed divines, I think, suggested that it's through prayer as one of the chief parts of of assimilating the word. Remember, Calvin said that 
Prayer was the chief exercise of our faith. That's how we grasp the benefits of Christ. It's how we receive them daily. God grants his grace and his Holy Spirit only to those who ask, the Heidelberg Catechism says. Only to those who ask in faith and give gratitude to God for it. And so prayer becomes an important part. We must show diligence in our faith so that we won't be sluggish. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. The gospel is that, uh, in all of this, because that seems kind of heavy, doesn't it? It seems, okay, now you're telling me I've got to be a serious student and I'm overwhelmed already to the point of being anxious and feeling so overwhelmed. And now you're telling me that along with this study that in class I should be praying and I should, every time that I receive a word, I should be attentive to it and, and offer up thanks to it and somehow assimilate it into my life. That's what I'm saying. But the gospel is this, that he is working among us that which is pleasing in him. We do not do this on our own. It is God who is at work. It is God who gives us the spirit so that we can pray in the first place. It's God who prompts us to pray. It's God who gives us his word. And perhaps the the gospel message so clearly for us not in this particular section, but in chapter 6, verse 3, is this. This we will do if God permits. You see, God is going to grant this gift of taking in his word and of receiving it with joy and of assimilating it into our lives. God grants the gift, and we pursue it with diligence. That's the gospel. The gospel is that that the one who lives to intercede for us now is praying for us. And so we're not praying on our own. Christ lives to intercede for us, and the Holy Spirit is praying in us and through us. So this is not our work. This is all God's work. This we will do if God permits. If I can just change the, the metaphor as we close here. We've been talking about eating and digesting food, God's word. But the author in chapter 6 turns and, and changes the metaphor as well. So I want to finish with that metaphor. He compares people to ground. That's rather humbling, isn't it? You're dirt. We're all dirt. It's like Mark 4. You're soil. What kind of soil are you? He says, you're dirt. Are you hard dirt that you don't receive the rain that's received? Or are you able to receive it? Many of you came here as students because you either want to preach and teach the word or you want to grow in the knowledge of God's word. And God has graciously given you this gift, this unique time to study here. This is an amazing time in your life. Do you realize that? You probably will not have another time like this. You will be sent out to the four corners of the world. And so you have this unique opportunity to receive God's word. And so the metaphor that I want to use is that this is your seedbed. You know that's what the word seminary means, right? Yeah. Seminary is seedbed. This is your seedbed. Obviously, you'll have more time as you move on from this place to continue to be good dirt 
But right now, this is seedbed time. You're here to receive the seed of God's word. And so, receive that word with all joy and diligence. Receive the doctrines with joy and diligence by a trained faculty. This is a place of unique spiritual formation. When you get to the point of graduation, we will gather in the same place and I will stand right here and have 10 minutes to speak with you and I will tell you this, that the word alumnus means nursling. So that as you grow in your knowledge of God's word and when you get to that point of commencement, you will be a nursling. You will be taken out of this seedbed here and you will be transplanted somewhere else so that you can flourish and grow and bear fruit in other people's lives. How are we going to do this? By this time, you all ought to be teachers. This we will do, if God permits. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this unique opportunity to study at Westminster Seminary. Thank you for gifted teachers who are able to rightly divide your word and equip your saints for the work of ministry. May all of us be built up in Christ and mature in our faith to the full stature of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will make all of these students who are gifted apt to teach, gentle to persuade, for the edification of your church and for the glory and fame of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.